I've always known it was hard to uh, preach early in the morning, but uh, I think it must be even harder to sing, and they do it so well. Thank you very much. Ely Wiesel said on the occasion of his acceptance of the Nobel Prize that no one is more capable of gratitude than one who has been retrieved from the domain of death. Certainly, no one was more capable of gratitude and love than Mary of Magdala. Luke tells us that Jesus had cast out of her seven evil spirits. We can only imagine in our wildest imaginings the kind of mental and physical anguish to which she had been subjected prior to the day she met her Savior. He was able to do for her what no one else could do. Mary had been forgiven much, therefore she loved much. And that is why, since she could not come to the grave to continue the final ministries of love to the body of Jesus on Saturday, that being the Jewish Sabbath and all work was forbidden, she came very early in the morning, on Sunday morning, the first day of the week. Indeed, John tells us it is so early, it is still dark. John is the only one who tells us it's still dark. Now, there isn't much difference between the accounts if you look at all the gospel writers. Not much time differential between very early in the morning or as it began to dawn or while it was still dark. The word for early tells us it was between 3 and 6 a.m. because that was during the fourth or final watch of the night. While it was still very dark, Mary came to the sepulchre. Why Mary alone? All of the other accounts include those faithful women from Galilee who were with her. There isn't any reason to believe that although John gives a personal detailed account of Jesus' appearance to Mary, that she is alone. Because in that second verse, you see the first person plural when she ran to find Simon Peter and John. She said, we do not know, we do not know where they have laid him. So obviously the other women were there, but Mary is the principal person in John's account, the leader of the group, and she in front of the others in her great love and eagerness was the first to the broken tomb. We don't know the thoughts she had when she first saw that great stone rolled away. They didn't have doors as we feature them swinging on hinges. They had a great groove in the rock and, and this huge stone was rolled into place. Matthew tells us it had been sealed and, and soldiers posted to stand guard. Apparently for fear of their lives, the soldiers had already run. And now Mary sees this stone rolled away. 
And her first thought might have been, the enemies of Jesus, not content to see him dead, have now come back to desecrate his body and to do further violence to his person. Or maybe she thought about that ghoulish practice uh, so common in the ancient world of robbing graves. And she thought the grave robbers have come. One of the reasons why that grave they discovered at the pyramids the other day made all the papers is because it's so rare to find a grave that hasn't been plundered, especially when they kept wealth in it. Most of the graves were robbed before the grieving family got back to their homes. It was a common practice for desperate people looking for any kind of a a loot they could find anywhere. And, And when Mary saw that, she must have thought, Oh my, they've done something dreadful to the body of my Lord. Her first thought was to run to the leaders of the disciples. And so she ran searching for Simon Peter and for John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Apparently, they were staying in the same home because she found them and they, they ran together toward that tomb. I believe it's highly instructive that Simon Peter and John were together. Think about that for a moment. The one who had stood at the foot of the cross, the one who had been with his Lord and had heard his last gentle instructions, take care of my mother, and mother, John will take care of you after I'm gone. John, the one who stood there, faithful through thick and thin, standing at the bleeding feet of his Lord. John was together with Simon, who had denied his Lord three times had denied him with a curse. They are together. John has room in his heart. John has room in his home for the one who has failed his Lord. The faithful one and the failed one come together. You see, the gospel is getting through. Already they are beginning to understand that you are to restore those who have fallen, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. They are beginning to learn what it means to be loved and and how you are to love in return. I read in yesterday's paper about those pilgrims in Jerusalem all dressed up in costume carrying their crosses, walking the Via Dolorosa, stopping at all the stations of the cross to give devotion to their Lord. And then when they came to a crossroads and encountered another group of pilgrims, they scuffled over who had the right of way. And I thought, oh my, they're carrying their wooden crosses but they don't have the foggiest idea what the cross is all about. But here in Peter and John, we already see the the beginnings of the formation. What did it mean that he loved us like that? How then should we love one another? That great Spanish artist, El Greco, 
captured that look of Simon Peter on canvas in such a way that anyone who's ever seen it can never forget it. There in that unforgettable portrait in the cathedral at Toledo, Spain, one sees the stricken face of the great apostle Peter as the tears are flowing down his cheeks and he is confronted by this Lord whom he is denied and his heart is breaking because of his failure. But even as he looks up through those stricken eyes, you can see prominent on his arm the ring of keys. He still has the keys of the kingdom. Sure, he's fallen. You bet he denied him. And he's heart sick with his failure. But when Mary went to get the disciples, she didn't just bring John. She brought Simon Peter too. And then John outran Simon Peter. He was the first to the tomb. Now, that's not so unusual. I mean, we can understand that. John was the youngest. He should have outrun him. John lived to the end of the century. He may have, he may have been just a teenager when the Lord called him to be his apostle, and, and that makes a difference. I, I remember uh, when Boyd Wagner and Charles Thompson and I were uh, jogging over to Y one day, and, you know, both those fellows are in their 50s, and we were, we were going around that track. And there was a young person there, no more than a teenager, going around so fast that the, the wind, when he had passed us, had almost blew us off the track. And, and, and we don't call ourselves runners anymore. We're joggers, and we were jogging, and this boy was running. And, and, and finally we told him, said, Now look, if, if you lap us 40 or 50 more times, you're going to offend us. I mean, of course, uh, John was the first there. Uh, the guy was a young sprout, but he had a fine and sensitive and reticent nature about him. Maybe it was sense of awe and reverence, because when he reached the tomb, he did not go in. Now, when that old huffing and puffing crude, impulsive Peter arrived. He just barged right on in. No sensitivity about Simon at all. And then emboldened by Simon, John decided he could also go in. And when he went in, he saw the grave clothes folded, and he believed. He was the first to believe, the one who had loved the master. Isn't it interesting? Simon saw those folded grave clothes and wondered and then went fishing. John saw them and believed. It takes one thing for somebody to believe and something else for somebody else. It took an empty tomb for John. That was enough evidence. It took a, a word for Mary. It took a touch for Thomas. 
Martin Luther said he didn't believe because of an empty tomb. He believed because of a Christ-filled world. I guess that's different strokes for different folks. It's one of the reasons why I reject all the canned appeals to conversion and why I can't accept patented appeals. And everybody's supposed to go through the same hoop and say everything the same way. Never has been true, never will be true, and try to take someone to press them all into the same mold is the silliest thing in the world. John looked and believed, and Simon looked and went fishing. The old fathers used to say the same heat that causes the wax to melt also hardens the clay. John looked and recognized in the way those clothes were lying, that in a calm, majestic demonstration of his lordship over death, Jesus had put his grave garments aside and walked out of that tomb alive forevermore. He had overcome death. You and I talk about people passing on. John knew that death had passed on. Later, he said, the former things have passed away. He knew in that moment that Jesus had overcome death. You know, in the ancient world, they didn't think anyone could conquer except a god. A god could conquer in battle. A god was unconquerable. So in those pagan days, it wasn't unusual that they selected Nike the Greek goddess of victory, as one of their favorite uh, deities. She was so beloved and so valued that the Athenians put a, a beautiful little temple to, a th to Nike at the very entrance to their famed Parthenon, right there on the Acropolis of Athens, just to make sure that she didn't fly away to some of their rival cities. They clipped her wings. So here is this statue of stone, the goddess of Nike, overlooking the city of Athens, and all the residents looked up and felt secure because Nike was standing guard over their city. When John started to write the Revelation, he deliberately and intentionally, I believe, contrasted Nike with Jesus, the one who had truly conquered. Indeed, he called Jesus Nikon, not Nike, Nikon. It's the Greek word that means the overcomer. He used that word ten times. The overcomer. Jesus has overcome death, and through faith in him, we too can conquer death. Well, Mary was slow getting back to the tomb, for she had run twice the distance. She had gone all the way to find the apostles, and then they had outdistanced her because they were fresher, and she came back more slowly. And there's no reason to assume that those houses in which they were staying were anywhere near the hill called Calvary. At any rate, when she came back, the apostles were gone. And she stood there weeping. 
And out of the grave, the angel spoke to her, saying, Woman, why are you weeping? You see, the angels that hovered over his cradle, the angels that stood by the shepherds, and now the angels kept watch over his grave, and they inquired of her the source of her misery. Mary had a peculiar kind of misery because she was living, as it were, on memory. She didn't have the Christian hope within her. Her life was living on memory. And, and when you're living on memory only, uh, then death just about destroys you. Somebody has said our Victorian forebears had a morbid fascination with death. They never mentioned sex, but they were fascinated by death. In our contemporary culture, we are obsessed with sex, but death is the great unmentionable. Nobody ever talks about dying. And in the sense that we don't come to terms with the reality of death, we fail to appreciate the magnificence of Easter. Alan Walker, in that little book, Everybody's Calvary, talks about a family uh, who was having a funeral. He was doing the funeral for them, and they weren't Christians. They weren't uh, members of the church. They didn't have any faith or any faith connection. But they had wanted a clergyman to do the funeral. Well, Alan Walker says it was just a form for those people. And at the end of the service, a young woman who was beside herself with grief went up and looked down into the grave and said, Goodbye, Father. And it was goodbye. And when all you have is a memory and you don't have the Christian hope, then the grave just fills your whole sky. But there was somebody else there besides the angel. Jesus was standing behind Mary. And he spoke to her, raising the same question, saying, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she turned, and supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, where have you taken him? They, they've mislaid my Lord. They've taken him away, and I don't know where he is. Uh, show me where he is, and I'll take him away. Isn't that just like love? What was she going to do with the body of Jesus? Uh, she's overrated her strength. Uh, how was she going to take it? Where was she going to take it? What was she going to do with it? Love doesn't calculate. And, and love doesn't do all that practical working out of details. Love just acts. You tell me where the body of my Lord is and I'll take it away. I'll see to it. And then comes that great and glorious exchange when Jesus calls her name. And she responds, Rabboni, or teacher, or master. I like to think she said, master. You know, at the really great reunions, they are marked by a scarcity of words. 
When the feelings are truly deep, words become an inadequate conveyor. Words are so often unable to bear the weight that feelings impose. So when the meeting is truly significant, there aren't many words. The more superficial the occasion, the more numerous the words. You go to a great banquet in our modern world, and somehow it's become a standard for our society that the hour before that banquet or dinner be given over to drinking. They call it the cocktail hour, and people stand around and talk. You go to one of those banquets, I go to a million of them. You, you go to one of those and, and stand around with a thousand people for an hour and, and listen to them, talk to them. If you were to take, if, if you could find some procedure not yet discovered and uh, extract from all those clever, chatty conversations everything that is significant and, and put all of that essence together into one little uh, jar and weigh it, it wouldn't come to one fraction of the weight of the two words spoken by Jesus and Mary. It's just not significant. It's superficial. Millions of words, but they don't really mean anything. And all of Mary's past and future and all her life came together that day when she heard that sweet, low voice of Jesus say, Mary. And from her soul, she responded, Master. And then the scripture gets a little confusing, doesn't it? Because it says, Jesus said, according to the King James Version, Do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended. Now, by the time the Revised Standard Version had been translated, they changed that, and it's a more correct translation. Because instead of saying, Do not touch me, the Revised Standard Version says, Do not hold me, or another, Do not cling to me. Wouldn't have made any sense for Jesus to say to Mary, don't touch me. I mean, later on, he invited Thomas to touch him. And in Luke, he said to the disciples, handle me and see if I'm real. And in Matthew, they held on to his feet while they worshipped him. So why in the world would he have said to this devoted woman, don't touch me? He said, do not hold me. Because to grant her that request would have been to deny his ultimate objective. And his ultimate objective now was to offer himself to all people. Now the shape of their relationship was changed. Now he's no longer limited by time and space. Now he is a risen Christ and through his Holy Spirit he offers the merits of his death and the power of his resurrection to all people who by faith will receive him 
into their hearts. Do not hold me. I want to make my appeal to every human heart. Like a good shepherd, he called her name. And when she responded from her soul, a millennium of joy filled the moment when she called Jesus Master. Now in his risen spirit, he calls your name. Though you may be turned toward death in the tomb, no matter what your situation, he calls your name. In your heart, you know his spirit is making an appeal to you. Could you, would you ignore that summons? You could not, and I cannot. We can only give ourselves in glad surrender and willing sacrifice to the one who has conquered death for us. Amen. Our hymn of commitment is sing with all the sons of glory. And as we sing, I hope you will respond to the leading of Christ's Spirit in your life. And if he is calling you to unite with his church, if he is calling you to recommit your life, if he is calling you to a first-time commitment, I invite you to come present yourself here at the altar as we sing the first, second, and last stanzas of our hymn of commitment. Let us stand.
Dr. Henson, I'm pleased to introduce to our congregation Rusty Bridges, who comes by profession of faith. Rusty, we are stirred and moved that you have responded to the claims of Christ on your life. In a little while, we will be asking you all of the traditional vows of church membership, but let me ask you now in the presence of this company if you will pledge yourself to the support of the church, and will you do that with your prayers, your presence, your gifts, and your service? And if you will, say, I will. And it is a joy to welcome you on this day of wonderful decision in your life. And now may the blessing of the risen Christ go with you and abide with you now and forever. Amen. Oh. 